Two, one. What's up, guys? Welcome to Inside You, the College Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Xavier Otic, and we are back for another episode of Inside You. It is Group of Five Wednesday. Get excited and let's get started. A lot to get into today. First things first, like I promised on Monday's episode of Inside You, my Heisman Trophy standings. Right now, in my mind, the Heisman Trophy comes down to two players, two Tagovailoa at Alabama and Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State, both players quarterback. Tagaloa, so far, 24 touchdowns to zero interceptions. Very impressive. Hasn't even played a fourth quarter. But with Tagafaloa, the big concern recently has been his knee. If you missed it, he suffered a sprained knee in practice a couple of weeks ago. Last week in their game against Mizzou, he was pulled out of the game following re-injuring that same knee. The specific play that it occurred on was a non-contact play where Tagafaloa attempted to slide very concerning for me that he did re-injure it on a non-contact play. Certainly this weekend with the Crimson Tide facing Tennessee in a very pivotal SEC game. Very interesting to see how that injury comes into play. Nick Sabe is saying repeatedly that he's fine and that he could have gone back in if necessary. But when you have Jalen Hurts as your backup, why not be precautious? Then second, Dwayne Haskins, 28 touchdowns to four interceptions. Furthermore, he has two big wins on the road over TCU and Penn State. The big question is there how much credit they're going to give Haskins considering the many impressive receivers he has, guys like Tate Martell and some of the other players on that team, as well as that backfield of J.K. Dobbins and Mike Webber. After those two guys, in my mind, it is a big, big drop until we get to number three. In many ways, I feel like you're seeing the college football analysts and reporters starting to almost come up with the top five because it's such a disparity. The main thing that I think that gives Haskins a big advantage is that he has seen more football so far than Tagovailoa. And also with this possible knee injury coming into play, it could limit Tagovailoa's season. Certainly with Alabama going into their game against Tennessee this weekend before they have that open date and then they have a serious matchup against LSU, we could see Saban quicker on the trigger this weekend. So number three, then I have Travis Etienne, an astonishing 9.2 yards average per play. Slow start to begin with, but since then he's gone for 162, 122, 203, and 167 yards two weekends ago before the Tigers were off this last weekend with a bye. Then at four, I've got Kyler Murray, obviously struggling after that loss to Texas in the Red River shootout, although he does have 21 touchdowns to only three interceptions. Certainly the defense is a question and could hinder Murray's ability to win the Heisman but he does have a very interesting backstory having like I've said many times before already been drafted in last year's MLB draft and being given a 4.6 signing bonus by the Oakland Athletics so it would be a big storyline if he were to also add a Heisman trophy to his list of accolades then at number five LaVisca Sinault Chenault, certainly possibly the best wide receiver in the Pac-12 for a conference that's known for producing impressive Receivers, guys like Lynn Swan, guys like Chad Johnson, guys like Robert Woods, et cetera, et cetera. To say that is certainly something to not laugh at. 13 yards averaging as well as six touchdowns, although he did suffer an injured toe in their loss, first loss of the season to UCLA last weekend. He is questionable for this weekend against Washington Similar to Tagovailoa, an injury could hinder his abilities at the Heisman. And like I've mentioned, with Colorado's lack of an impressive preseason scheduling and their loss to USC last weekend, certainly going to hurt his chances. 
certainly in years past, we've seen that great players have been hindered by their team's overall lack of an impressive record. Obviously, the biggest one that people always like to bring out is Marshall Falk at San Diego State. After that, we have a couple of guys who have been out, but just a little bit outside than the rest. Daryl Henderson, obviously very impressive, already 133, excuse me, 1,133 yards, 13 touchdowns, an astounding 10.3 yards per attempt. However, Memphis has already suffered three losses to Navy, Tulane, and Central Florida. Certainly, those three losses plus a fourth going forward would probably prevent Henderson from receiving the nod. Then Jordan Love, Utah State's quarterback. Utah State right now, one of the best teams in that Mountain West Mountain Division, came out of nowhere. He's got 14 touchdowns to three interceptions. Their only loss is to a Michigan State team who just this past weekend upset Penn State. But unfortunately, he does not appear to have the height necessary to make a serious run. Then behind him, we've got Mackenzie Milton, 16 touchdowns to four interceptions. They're undefeated, but he did have three interceptions against a less than impressive South Carolina State team. Also with Milton, I feel like this season the Central Knights have, excuse me, the Central Florida Knights have lost a little bit of luster. Certainly don't seem to appear to have the hype that they had last season with Scott Frost, although they are still undefeated. And then lastly, if you're wondering why he's missing, Ed Oliver, only two sacks so far, although he does have an 11 and a half tackles total. This is a guy that met every game is facing multiple double and even triple teams. If you want to see what kind of impact he has in the game, go back and watch the Cougars game against Arizona, where he basically obliterated the Wildcats line single-handedly. Certainly, again, a guy who I think deserves a lot of credit. Right now, the Cougars are 5-1. and one. They're one loss coming to a surging Texas Tech team that looks like they have an outside shot at winning the Big 12. But unfortunately, his numbers haven't stacked up to what people were thinking about going into the season. But as I mentioned, right now, it's Tagovailoa's game to lose. However, I think Dwayne Haskins does have a serious shot at it right now, especially with Tagovailoa's injury concerns. So then, since we are halfway through the season, we can start guessing about who might be the group of five representative in the New Year's Six Bowl. In case you are unaware, the highest rated group of five team plays in the New Year's Six Bowl. Last year, obviously, it was Central Florida taking on Auburn in the Peach Bowl. This year, I have Central Florida right now as the number one seed. They're still 10th going into this week. They didn't move it up at all last week, and even with so many teams in the top 10 suffering losses, they are undefeated and on a 19-game winning streak. However, they still have games against Temple, Cincinnati, and South Florida. All of those teams are undefeated in conference play right now. Also, they would probably face Ed Oliver's Cougars in the championship game, and I think it'd be really interesting to see how that goes. As much attention as Oliver draws for what he's able to do on the defensive side of the ball, he's overshadowing a very impressive Houston offense led by D.R. King, a converted wide receiver, and Marquez Stevenson, who has had one of the best catches for a touchdown I've seen in college football this year. Also, we're definitely seeing, in my mind, a bit of a decrease in Central Florida's defense, certainly not looking the same way they did last weekend when Shakreem Griffin was calling the signals. Then right behind them, I have Houston. They're 5-1 also a member of the American Conference. They have a nice win over Arizona and effectively ended Khalil Tate's Heisman Trophy candidate. Also, their lone loss to Texas Tech in hindsight appears to have been a lot less damaging than initially thought. Furthermore, Texas Tech is going to go on to play both Oklahoma and Texas at home. Those two teams, along with Houston, excuse me, along with West Virginia, all are making a run towards the Big 12 championship game. 
if they were able to win one or even both of those, that would definitely negate the Cougars' loss to them. However, Houston still has to face an undefeated South Florida, an undefeated in-conference Temple team, and they have to travel to Memphis. Certainly, all those games are concerning. Again, they would also have to face the Central Florida in the championship game. But in my mind, those two teams right now behind Mackenzie Milton and Ed Oliver, both of whom are fringe Heisman Trophy contenders, should be the one clear one and two. Then at number three, I've got the San Diego State Aztecs. The Aztecs certainly surprised a lot of people when they went to Boise and came up with a win over the Broncos. They're five and one with their lone loss coming to Stanford, a Stanford team at the time who looked like the Pac-12's best chance of making the college football playoff. They were also able to notch a win over Arizona State. Keep in mind, this was the week after Arizona State upset a very good Michigan State team who just this past weekend upset Penn State. And that Stanford loss, they also were able to negate the impact of Bryce Love, who at that time was a legitimate Heisman Trophy candidate. However, they still have to face a very good Fresno State team who's also 5-1, and one, but Fresno State has to beat Boise State and San Diego State to win the Mountain West West Division. So the Aztecs are certainly in control of their destiny. will be very interesting to see what happens there going forward. Then right behind them, I have South Florida, Charlie Strong's team 6-0, Blake Barnett playing very well, getting the job done each and every week, even if it's not pretty. They also have a nice win over a Georgia Tech team, which hung 66 on Louisville two weeks ago. Georgia Tech still has to play Virginia Tech, Miami, and Georgia. All of those teams certainly going to be in the running for the respective conference championship games. However, Georgia Tech, excuse me, however, would a win over Georgia Tech mean more than Houston's win over Arizona at the time or San Diego State's win over Arizona State? I'm not sure. Furthermore, South Florida, like a lot of these schools in the American, still has to play Houston, Cincinnati, at Temple, and Central Florida. I don't think they win more than two games in that stretch, but we'll have to see. Up until this point, Strong team certainly has had and tested. Certainly, they're still seeing the loss of Terrence Horn. If you missed it, you definitely want to check out Horn's highlights. He is an explosive playmaker, but will be interesting to see. If you haven't been paying attention, three of those four teams that I mentioned right now are from the American Athletic Conference. American Athletic Conference, as of right now, has three ranked teams in the top 25. They are the most represented group of five conference, and they are certainly showing power of five teams that you need to come ready to play them. Then right behind them, kind of a trendy pick in the last few days, Appalachian State. They're 4-1. They were the first team to really test Penn State the first weekend of the season, pushing them to overtime, really making Trace McSorley fight for that victory there. However, similar to Central Florida, they do not have a win over a Power 5 team, and that I think will hurt their candidacy. Central Florida, remember, does not either have a win over a Power 5 team. However, the game that they would have played against North Carolina, they most likely would have won, but that game was canceled due to Hurricane Florence. So right now, certainly I think Central Florida is in control of their destiny. Certainly will be tested going forward, as they have been most of this season, but I do think they will continue to get the job done and represent the group of five in that New Year's Six Bowl. Then, moving along to some of the top storylines in college football right now, like I mentioned earlier, Tua Tagovailoa suffering that sprained knee, re-injuring it last weekend in the Crimson Tide game against Missouri. 
Nick Saban saying on Monday that he could have put him back in if necessary. However, like I mentioned before, what really concerned me about it was Tagovailoa re-injuring it on a non-contact play. This coming week, they are playing a very motivated and upbeat Tennessee team coming off that upset win over Auburn. Tennessee right now is in a state where they were so unhappy with previous coach Butch Jones, and they were a little bit unhappy with new coach Jeremy Pruitt prior to this one over Auburn, that a win over Alabama would effectively make their season. I'm pretty sure that if they beat Alabama this weekend, they wouldn't need to win another game all season to make Volunteers fans happy. They're going to come in motivated. Jarek Guarantano coming off his best game of the season by far. Certainly, Tagovailoa's injury has to be a cause for concern if I'm Nick Saban. Also, I wonder for an RG3 situation where if he plays this weekend and seriously re-injures it, does it prevent him long-term? Certainly, I think Tagovailoa's probably already spoken to his family. They've probably weighed in. And that's why I think we're going to see Saban have a quick trigger, probably as soon as the Crimson Tide really do push this game to a substantial lead. We'll see him pull out the trigger and bring in Jalen Hurts. Hurts, remember, has already won the SEC without even really throwing the ball. So as a game manager, he's probably the best you can imagine. This is a guy who they're saying has gotten better each week under the quarterback tutelage of new quarterback coach Dan Enos. And I think we'll see that come into play. And obviously, again, we're seeing the benefits of having a former SEC Offensive Player of the Year as your backup quarterback. Then, now that it's the middle of the season, we're starting to see injuries really factor into teams. The big storyline in the last few days, Ole Miss wide receiver DK Metcalf suffering a serious neck injury. He's done for the season. He'll need surgery. We'll be interesting to see what his future holds going forward. Porter Gustin, USC's one of USC's better defensive players suffering a fraction ankle. He's done for the season. Certainly a serious loss to the Trojans' attempt to win the Pac-12 South and the Pac-12 Championship. Remember, USC traveling to Utah this weekend and facing a very good Utah team, a team that's certainly been on a streak these last couple of weeks. Then Miles Gaskin, the running back for Washington, he injured his shoulder in Washington's overtime loss to Oregon this last weekend. It's still to be determined the exact nature of the injury and how long he will be out for. But with Washington hosting a one-loss Colorado team this weekend, Gaskin's missing would certainly be noticed for a Huskies team that really does need to win out the rest of their season to win the Pac-12 North and make a run at the Pac-12 championship. Then finally, Jalen Phillips, UCLA's outside linebacker, UCLA having won their first game of the season a week ago, winning on the road at Cal. He suffered a concussion. He'll be done for the season. Again, now that it's the middle of the season, we're going to see injuries play a big of a bigger amount of a role going into the end of the season. Certainly any time in sports, injuries will come into play and the team that can typically deal with them and manage them the best ultimately does most of the time end up winning. Speaking of injuries, we want to give an update on Christian Abercrombie, the Tennessee State defensive player. Abercrombie, remember, collapsed in a game against Vanderbilt. He was rushed to Vanderbilt University Medical Center, went underwent emergency surgery. He is now in stable condition, his mother reports. Very good to hear. Our thoughts and prayers are still with Abercrombie as he continues his journey to recovery. Then, the big news of today, Nick Bosa, the star defensive end for Ohio State, is done for the season. Nick Bosa injured his core muscle in Ohio State's game against TCU. He was forced to undergo surgery. His father said repeatedly that this will not be a long-term impacting 
issue, but it certainly will require a lot of rehabilitation. Not surprised here that Bosa is deciding to forego the rest of his season. This is a guy who will certainly be a top pick in next year's NFL draft. Why risk re-injuring himself? I don't think you need to see any more tape to know that he's the real deal. Keep in mind, this is a guy whose father played in the NFL. He's already shown with his older brother, Joey, and with his dealings with the Chargers that they're very savvy. They know how to work the system. I was always suspect when Nick Saban said he was coming back or when some people were saying that he would come back for the very end of the Buckeyes season. However, I will say that even with Chase Young having taken up a bigger role in the Buckeyes defense, this is certainly a big loss for the Buckeyes. I now do have to ponder if maybe Michigan does have the best defensive line in college football with a guy like Chase Winovic and hopefully a returning Rashawn Gary sometime soon. And it does not surprise me. I do think Nick Bosa will show at the next level that he is a tremendous impact player. Although I will say that between him having already torn an ACL and this this core muscle injury, I do have to wonder if he might be a little more injury prone than his brother. But it will be interesting to see. However, that's a serious, another negative storyline for Urban Meyer's team, which is already dealing with all of his off field stuff, does not want to hear about losing a player like Bosa. Definitely a guy who you want in your locker room. Then the no update on the pay-for-play trial. This past week, now that college basketball is right around the corner, college coaches have started to weigh in on the trial. The biggest one being Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, Duke calling it a blip. Roy Williams, on the other hand, saying he was dumbfounded by many of these allegations. I just want to take a moment and say that many theories have been raised about why head coaches haven't been directly implicated in this trial. The most prevailing one right now is that head coaches are so insulated from this type of activity that they create kind of this wall of plausible deniability. And so it prevents them from having to get their hands dirty. That certainly does not surprise me. Keep in mind that Rick Pitino and with everything was going there with their scandal involving the female escorts being utilized to offer high rated recruits sexual favors to commit to Louisville. He had Andre McGee, his director of basketball operations, taking care of it. How much Pitino knows is certainly up for debate, but typically these programs will have just one or maybe two guys on staff whose kind of job is to take care of those things and not tell the head coach about them. At the same time, though, when we're talking about these two programs, Certainly, the, you could argue that if, I think if you asked most casual fans to name me a college basketball powerhouse, they would probably tell you half Duke and half North Carolina. When you are at the top of the mountain, you don't have to engage in some of the other underhanded chicks, like maybe a program like Auburn or LSU or some of these other schools that are looking to move their way up the ladder might have to do to attract a star player. Also, I want to point out that John Calipari, who seems to be forever tied to these types of scandals, he's repeatedly said that if I didn't recruit these guys, they would just end up at Duke or North Carolina. So it's a bit of a stretch for me to believe that no player that's ever played at North Carolina or Duke has accepted money or been offered money by a staff member, booster, fan, whatever you want to call it, agent to either go to that school or been assisted during his time at that school. And at the same time, kind of with that, that also is why I would never really expect a program like a Notre Dame or a Villanova to be involved in this because they're not really recruiting the same players. Their expectations are different. And because of that, the kind of people that are involved are different. 
And just kind of lastly, in regards to Coach K's comments calling it a blip, while this may not be a big storyline for Duke individually, certainly a big storyline for the ACC, NC State, one of the programs that's come up repeatedly, certainly a big deal for college basketball. And another thing about Coach K is he's certainly benefited from not only the success he's had at Duke, that his players have had in the NBA, but also having been the conference, excuse me, the USA basketball head coach for a number of years. Here's a guy who's directly dealing with NFL players in a controlled setting. He's close to guys like LeBron, Kobe Bryant, etc. Maybe because of that, he doesn't have to then do something like go to a guy and say, what is it going to take to get this guy to sign on the dotted line? So just a quick take on that. Again, like I've said before, I really don't think we should be surprised by this. Kind of the familiar narrative that I've heard out of this is that anyone who is connected at all with college basketball was not surprised about it. Matter of fact, it appears that they're in many ways elated to finally have this come to light so they can stop the charade and hopefully finally make some real changes to college basketball. So that moves us along to this weekend's games. Starting things off, we have an undefeated Cincinnati team traveling to Temple. Temple favored by three and a half. Temple four and three overall, but three and zero in AAC play. Remember, entering the season, Temple was one of many people's picks to win their side of the American. They're coming off a win over Navy, twenty-four to seventeen. Cincinnati, on the other hand, they're six and zero. They're coming off their bye week, and even with QB Desmond Ritter being a freshman, and this really being one of their first true road tests. This is their fourth road game of the year. I like Cincy to pull off the upset here and continue, move to 7-0. or no. Then we've got Buffalo traveling to Toledo. Toledo favored by three. Buffalo 6-1 and one right now. Their only loss coming to an Army team that pushed Oklahoma to the brink. They're coming off a 24-6 victory over Akron. Toledo, on the other hand, 3-3, three and three, coming off a close loss to Eastern Michigan. K.J. Osborne has, has emerged as a nice complement to Anthony Johnson, for Buffalo, and I think Tyree Jackson and they Buffalo get the job done there. Then FAU traveling to Marshall. FAU favored by three. Nick Lane Kiffin's team three and three right now. However, all their losses have come to better teams: Oklahoma, Central Florida, and Middle Tennessee. They're coming off a bye. Marshall, on the other hand, four and two, having lost to NC State and Middle Tennessee. If you're looking for the real comparison here, FAU lost to Middle Tennessee by one. Conversely, Marshall lost to them by 10. So I think the Owls pull off the victory there. Then in a huge American West showdown, we've got Houston traveling to Navy. Houston's favored by 12 and a half. They're 5 and 1. As I mentioned before, their lone loss coming to a surgeon Texas Tech team, and they're coming off a nice road win over ECU. Navy 2 and 4. Certainly a disappointing year for Kennedy and Matola's team, especially with the return of Malcolm Perry. Their losses coming to Hawaii, SMU, Air Force, and Temple. Coming off that loss to Temple, and I think that we're going to see Ed Oliver continues to do what he do. Most likely, I think we're going to see one of his better performances of the season, given the triple offense, given the triple option offense that Navy likes to run. Then we've got SMU traveling to Tulane. Tulane favored by a touchdown. SMU right now an unimpressive two and four. Their losses coming to North Texas, TCU, Michigan, and Central Florida. They're coming off a bye. All of these names that they've lost to are teams that you would expect to compete in their respective conferences. North Texas, if you're not familiar, has Mason Fine, who's one of the best quarterbacks in the Conference USA. Tulane, on the other hand, also 2-4, and coming off losses to Wake Forest, UAB, Ohio State, and Cincy. They're also coming off a bye. 
I think we're going to see Sonny Dykes and Ben Hicks team up here, look to exploit some of the holes in Tulane's defense and get the victory on the road. And then finally, a Power 5 game, which I want to highlight, which I didn't get to on Monday, Cal traveling to Oregon State. Cal favored by a touchdown there. Cal started out 3-0 before going 0-3, suffering losses to Oregon, Arizona, and this last weekend giving UCLA their first victory of the season. UCLA beat them 37-7. I repeat, 37-7. Oregon State, on the other hand, they're 1-5, their only win coming over Southern Utah. But they are coming off a bye week, and this game is taking place in Corvallis. While Corvallis certainly is the toughest place to recruit in the Pac-12, it can also be the toughest place to pull off a victory when the fans are involved. And I think we're going to see many fans show up for what could be the Beavers' best chance at a victory this season. And I think Jonathan Smith gets the job done here. So that's it for me today, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I will be back on Monday to discuss what will sure be another crazy weekend of college football. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you soon. Inside You, the College Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Xavier Roddick, signing out. Bye.